Let's pray. Dear Lord, open my mouth to speak your word. Open our ears to hear it and our minds to understand it. Lord, open our hearts to receive it. Amen. Who are you looking at? It's quite an unnerving question, isn't it? It might even feel a bit confrontational. And if um, you were born in Anfield, like me, and brought up in Liverpool, you might be quite careful how you answered a question like that. You might remember a little while ago that we had a sermon series that was called Questions Jesus Asked. And I found it a bit disconcerting just to see how often Jesus asked people questions that were really quite challenging. They're not the sort of questions that encourage flippant answers. And it's been said that we don't have a God who answers our questions. We have a God who questions our answers. And that's not just a play on words. You don't have to go very far as a Christian, do you, before you realize that the vicar of Dibley, snuggle bunny, cuddly Christianity that's portrayed there doesn't really cut the mustard. It's all fluff. In fact, it's Christianity with the difficult bits taken out. And if you read through the Gospels, the Jesus who drove the money changers out of the temple and who called the Pharisees whitewashed graves doesn't seem much like the image of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. So return to, uh, to return to our question, who are you looking at? The flippant answer is easy. It trips off the tongue. And in fact, if you went to a particular type of church as a youngster, you may have well learned all the proof texts. So you might be able to say straight away, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was before him despised the cross in its shame and is set before the right hand of the Father in glory on high. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Very good. Go to the top of the class. So the answer is obvious. We all know it. And it's always the same answer as the hand that goes up in Sunday school Please, miss, I, think, I don't know what the question means, but I think the answer is Jesus. So if the answer is obvious and we all know it, let's stop the sermon and we can have another cup of tea. We'll all go home. But you see, the Bible doesn't just ask the question once. It asks it again and again and again. And in almost every book in the Bible... And in a vast number of ways. Who are you looking at? And if it's so obvious, why? 
because we don't do it. I'm sure you know that the Bible tells us again and again to worship God alone, to put away false idols, and so it goes on. And when when I first became a Christian, I used to think, who is this egotistical God that wants to be worshipped all the time? I didn't share it with anybody, by the way. Um, But I, I thought, if he's the ruler of the universe, why does he need our worship? To be honest, I wish I had asked somebody the question because I would probably have been told the answer a little bit more quickly than it took me to realize it. God doesn't ask us to worship him because he needs it, but because we need it. You see, in both of our readings today, in Numbers... God tells Moses to make a bronze serpent. And everyone who looks at it is healed. And you find in John's Gospel, in John chapter 3, it tells us that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, so Jesus, will be lifted up. So that everyone who believes in him will be saved. And in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we read this, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And in a way, the reason's simple. God wants us to worship him because we become like the thing we worship. We all know the joke about the self-made man who worshipped his creator, but actually it's no joke. And this is why God is so insistent that we worship him and him alone, because he knows that if we don't, then we settle for something that is second best. And God hates second best. As human beings, we have an inbuilt propensity to worship, to focus, to look beyond ourselves. But our focus doesn't need to be the pop star or the new car or the job or the obvious things that we learned in Sunday school. It may be an idealized version of ourselves. Perhaps in our own minds, there's an idealized version of us. The airbrushed supermodel. The top student. Maybe the chap who gets the car with the 2.8 liter engine. And the automatic sunroof. Or maybe even an image of a spiritual you. Teaching or preaching or giving wise counsel being seen as spiritually mature. The problem is, of course, that we never get to look like the airbrushed supermodel or the chiseled hunk or get to the top of the tree or at least stay there because it's an illusion. 
in the Dawson household, Saturday night is TV and takeaway night. And to be perfectly honest, the TV on Saturday night is pretty dire, but the takeaway is normally good. And one time I sat uh, with Hannah, our youngest daughter, thumbing through the magazines in the Chinese takeaway while they fried our rice and noodled our noodles or whatever they were, were doing. And as we looked through the magazine, this fashion magazine, I said to her, let's see if we can find somebody here who looks like anyone we've ever actually met in real life. And this great thick magazine, we looked through every page and we didn't see anybody that looked remotely like anyone we'd seen in the real world. And even if you do get the car or the job or get to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger or become the wise one, it's unsatisfying because it's not what God made you for and it's not what God made me for. Well, so far, so fairly obvious. If we've followed Christ for some time, we may think, yes, yes, I, I know all of that. But as I say, God continues to question our answers. I still remember um, what a shock it was many years ago when I sat in a, a large evangelical church like this um, back in Liverpool, listening to a man called Richard Wurmbrandt preach. Some of you may have heard of him. Richard Wurmbrandt was the president of the World Council of Churches at one stage. He's much better known for some of his many books. Richard Wurmbrandt was a converted Jew. He was imprisoned twice, once under the Nazis as a Jew, and the second time by the communists. He was a Romanian Christian, um, imprisoned by the communists when they took over in 1956 and spent 14 years in prison, three of them in a subterranean prison cell 30 feet under the ground with a single light bulb that burned 24-7, a pipe through which he um, had access to air from outside, and a hatch that opened and in through the hatch came his food and out went anything no longer required. He was terribly tortured and he's written a book some of you may have heard, well written many books one of them called Tortured for Christ another very well known book called In God's Underground where he talks about how he was sustained in his faith and grew in his relationship with God through that time, in the most dire and desperate of circumstances. I remember sitting in this church that was absolutely packed, so much so that health and safety, I guess, these days would stop it. People were sat on every possible chair, right through all what were supposed to be the fire exits, People were sat in the organ loft. People were even sat on the window ledges. And Richard von Brandt walked very slowly and painfully through all the things that he'd suffered 
to the front of the church. And there was a silence that came. And I hadn't realized until then, but there are two kinds of silence. There's a silence that's a sort of negative silence because you've turned the radio off, so suddenly it's quiet. And there's a silence that's a positive silence. Something of the peace of God. And he must have been quiet for easily a minute, which in those circumstances seems an incredibly long time. And a great hush and peace descended on us all. And he just looked around at the congregation with such love. That wasn't particularly what startled me on that occasion. What did startle me was in his sermon at one point, and he was preaching about Christ, and he held up the Bible, and he said, this is not the truth. And an evangelical church, you could have heard a pin drop. He said, this is the truth about the truth. Jesus is the truth. The prayers we pray are not the truth. They're the truth about the truth. Jesus is the truth. The liturgy that we read, the hymns that we sing are not the truth. They're the truth about the truth. Because it came from his lips, because of all that he'd experienced, because of the Spirit of God, I suppose, moving in that circumstance. All of us knew at a very fundamental level what he was trying to say. He wasn't saying the Bible isn't true, or the prayers are nonsense, or we should chuck the liturgy out because it doesn't help us. But you can see from what St. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, whether there be prophecies, they will cease. They have a purpose. But the purpose is to point us to God. The prayers are to lead us to God. And how many churches have been torn apart by people's insistence on a particular way of reading and understanding the Bible? or a particular way of praying, or a particular understanding of who should be baptized and when, or a particular way of thinking about Holy Communion, or should I say the Eucharist, or the Lord's Supper, or Mass, and who should take it and who should not. And let those things get in the way of their love for Christ. God wants us to worship him because we need it. He wants to be our first focus because if we focus on something else, no matter how worthy it may be, it's second it's second best. Even Abraham, you can read it in Genesis. His 
son born in his old age, the gift from God. And when he took the knife and obeyed God's word and was about to sacrifice his own son, at that point, God regained first place in his life. Even the things that God gives, if they take the place of God and become first, will turn our hearts. Here was something that was a gift from God. Isaac was the son of their old age, the son of promise, and tied up in him was the future of the Jewish race and, in fact, of the whole of mankind. And yet, when he heard the voice of God, he was prepared to say, even that which God has given, even the gift from God, I will set aside in order to follow him with my whole heart. I wonder if God has given you a vision. I wonder if the call of God is on your life. I believe there are people here, sat here tonight, who have the call of God on their lives. And many of you know it. I believe there are people here tonight who have a vision from God of what he intends to do in their life and the lives of others. But even there, even with the call of God, even with the vision given from God, let us not put the gift ahead of the giver. So here's the challenge. Where do you get your image of God from? Where do you get your image of yourself from? Where do you get your image of other people from? And how do you know that you're seeing those things rightly. That's why Jesus said, I am the truth. Only in him, only in his light do we see light. So how do we move our relationships from being driven by papers and magazines and mass media and politicians and advertising slogans and popular culture and preachers and teachers and books? How do we move to focus on the giver rather than the gift? For this is the God who will transform your view of him. This is the God who will transform your view of yourself until you know in the depths of your being that you're loved and accepted by God, that you're forgiven and drawing into ever closer communion with him. This is the God that will transform your view of others so that there's no longer male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. This is the God who will bring you to see beyond gender and beyond power and beyond race and class to see others as God sees them. So what do we do with all of this? 
how do we focus on God? Let me share with you in closing three things that might help. First, make the time. I guess most of us know that relationships are difficult to sustain if we don't invest in them. And one of the most important things we can invest is our time. The same argument that says you don't have to go to church to be a Christian also says, well, you can pray anywhere, anytime. They're both true, sort of. But you know what I mean. It's a bit like me saying I can spend time with my wife anytime I want, but never actually doing it. Not much hope for those kind of relationships, I would suggest. Second is a place. Do you have a place where you set time aside to meet with God? We all make sorts of excuses, don't we? But we can always make time and we can always find a place for the things that we value most. There's a lovely story that Bill Hybors tells and if you have access to the internet, which I guess lots of us do, I'd really commend this to you. Go onto YouTube and type in Bill Hybels, very well-known um, American pastor, H-Y-B-E-L-S, and type in the chair. And he tells a lovely story of uh, a man in his congregation who was in a very, very intense marketing job. And he said, one time I was talking to him, and he said, Bill, it's all very well for you. He said, you know, you, you, you've no idea how busy my life is. You've no idea what it's like. It's fine for you as a pastor. You know, that's part of your life, reading the Bible and praying from morning till night. My life is filled with so many things every minute. And Bill said to him, well, I find I can always make time for things that I prioritize. And this chap wasn't awfully happy with the answer and didn't come to church again for quite a few weeks until eventually he came back and said, would you like to come to ours for supper? And he said, yes, so he did. And he said, in his room, um, he pointed to a chair, a rocking chair. And he said, I thought very deeply about what you'd said to me the other day. And I thought, if this is something that's important to me, I need to prioritize it. And he said, I have a nice backyard with plants in it and things. I like to look out over it. I've always liked rocking chairs, so I thought I'll spend the money and I'll buy a good one, and I'll make the time. So I've made the time, half an hour every day, the first thing I do in the morning, I get up half an hour earlier, and I sit in my chair, and I get my Bible, and I look out over my yard, and that's my time with God. And Bill said to him, well, how's it going? And at this point, his wife chipped in. And she said, I'll tell you how it's going. He's a changed man. She said he's so much more peaceful, centered, 
loving. He didn't get as stressed. He said, no, stop, I'm, now I'm embarrassed. But there's the question that he placed. Where is your chair? Where is your time? Do you make time? Is it something that you prioritize? Where is the place where you meet with God? And finally, there's a purpose. We come together and we sing, now is the time to worship. If we come together just to drink coffee and to chat and to check if there's any mail in our pigeonholes, they're all good things, by the way, and do check because they get very full, but if that's all we do, we've missed the point. Because if we don't have a purpose in making that regular time and setting aside that place, then we might as well be reading the paper or doing the crossword or checking our emails. It's got to be the time with God, where God can speak to us, where we worship him, where we hear what he says to us and where we take up the challenge. So to conclude, will you make time? Will you set aside a place and come to it with a purpose, the purpose of meeting with God? Let me challenge all of us this week, just for one week, to come to that time, to that place, each day this week, and ask ourselves the question, who am I looking at? Amen.